I want to invite you guys to turn over to 1 John for one last time. We've been in this letter now for several months, uh, but we have reached the end. We're going to be finishing it up this morning, and, and John concludes his letter with a statement of purpose, the reason that he's been writing the letter in the first place. Instead of giving that to us at the very beginning of the letter, he saves it for the end, and he tells us in verse 13 of chapter 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's what John's been doing. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. Built into that phrase is packed all sorts of truth that he's been unpacking about Jesus and how God has loved us in him. This letter has reminded us that when we were lost in sin, the God who made us and against whom we had rebelled on every day that we've ever lived sent his own son to die the death we should die for our sins and to rise again so that we can live beyond death. And that that promise of new life in Christ, eternal life, as John puts it, is available to every person, no matter who they are or what they've done, even now, right now, if we'll claim it. And John has written this letter so that we could know where we stand through Jesus. That's why he wrote, so that we could know this life available through Jesus is ours. It's a statement that really captures what he's been doing all along. He's been responding to misinformation that some teachers have been spreading throughout this early church. They've been coming in, kind of chopping away at confidence in what John had said when he first started this church. They've been creating divisions where some people were saying one thing about Jesus and another group of people were saying another thing about Jesus. And and even one big group left the church altogether and started their own thing over differences about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. So John's written this letter to try to help people find their way back to confidence about who Jesus really is and about what it really looks like to follow him. What he's been writing from the very beginning of this letter is meant to help you know. Know who Jesus is and know where you stand with him. It's a letter that's full of tests, tests for the genuine article, how you can tell the real thing. But those tests have always been meant not to make you wonder, but to make you certain. They're tests that have been aimed not at at weeding out what's false, but at uh, uh, false believers who have been believing wrong things. It's It's not meant to weed them out, but meant to help you see, help you confirm And to even affirm and assure you that your hope is not in vain. That you are building your life on the real thing. That's what this letter's about. And the way he ends it is with an almost bullet style list of things that he's already said through the letter. The end of this this letter is, is several statements that are only connected to one another by the fact that he's talked about them before. And it's like he just wants you to end with with these assurances ringing in your ears, some of the main themes that he's covered. So what we want to look at this morning is what, what did John want to leave them with at the end of, of this letter? What does he want ringing in their ears and in ours? What does he want us, in other words, to know? I'm going to read the last few verses of this letter. I want you to be looking, though, as we read through it. For every time that he says, we know, you're going to see it come up several times. What is it that we know? That's what John wants to end with. That's what we want to make sure we're clear as we clear on as we end this, this letter. And I'm just going to follow these we know statements one by one. 
for the next little bit of our time together this morning. I want to begin by reading the passage, though. So uh, if you would, please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. I'm going to pick up in 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. And then I'm going to read through the end of the letter, which is verse 21. This is God's word to us this morning. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I said a minute ago, this is, this is the, John's conclusion. He wants this letter ringing in the ears of his friends. And he ends with the things he wants them to remember. So what is it that John wants us to know as we finish our study of this letter? I'm pulling out four things from John's list that I want to encourage you with this morning. Here's the first one. We know as children of God, heirs of eternal life, that we will have everything we need through prayer. That comes out in verse 14. Right after reminding them that John's written to make sure they know that through believing in the Son of God, they can have eternal life. The first benefit of knowing God for eternal life, the first thing he wants them to know they have is access to God and the promise that God listens. Verse 14, this is the confidence we have toward him. This is how we know who we are toward God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, then what we know is that we have the request we've asked of him. That's a bold promise. It's not the first time John has said this. It's almost a quote from back in chapter three, verse 22. There he said, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And something we said when we were covering that passage, I'll just refer you back to that sermon if you want more information about this bold promise towards prayer. Something we said back in that passage was that we can't afford to, we gotta be careful with how we read this promise. We can't afford to read it at, at a kind of superficial level that we might be tempted to read it at. There's a superficial way to read this promise that kind of turns God into nothing more than, a, than some sort of cosmic vending machine where, where we, we input the right coinage, doing whatever pleases him, and he outputs 
whatever we ask for through hitting the certain button. John wants to shift that metaphor. He's not, it's not God as cosmic vending machine, but God as loving parent who knows what his children need and would never hold it back from them. Over and over through this letter, John has pointed us back to God as Father and to those who believe in the name of Jesus as God's children. That's the main metaphor he wants us to think through as we think about our relationship to God. He wants us to see ourselves as God's children. So, so take this prayer promise here and think about it as a, as a promise within the parent-child relationship. Still, though, we got to be careful. That gets us away from the cosmic vending machine and into the father and child relationship. But even there, we got to be careful not to mishear what John's saying. We can't think about God as a distracted parent who's just trying to get rid of us. You know, think of the parent who's just glued to their screen and their kid comes up and asks them something for something and they're just like, yeah, yeah, whatever, just take it. Just so they don't have to lift their eyes. That's not what John's telling us about God, far from it. He's also not talking about a, a desperate parent who gives their kid anything they want just because they're so scared of alienating them, who thinks they can buy the affection of their children by giving them whatever we want. That's, that's not God's relationship to us. That's not the right parent-child metaphor. We've got to think of him instead as a loving and attentive and purpose-driven parent who loves it when his children bring their needs from their lives straight to him as they are and trust him with what they need. Even more, think of him as a parent who loves it when their children depend on him and his power to do the things that he wants them to do, who see his calling on their lives, his description of what life would be best for them and embrace it and want it and join God in what God is about in the world. Now, when you've got a parent who's all-powerful, a parent who so loves his children that he gave up the life of Jesus to make them his, who's called his children to a way of life that he knows will be good for them and for the world that they live in, and he sees that beloved child get it, embrace it, and ask him for help. And how could that parent hold back anything that they need? Because when that's what you're asking him for, for power to live the life he's called you to that you know you can't live on your own. When you're just joining him and asking him to give you what you need, well, then that's prayer according to his will, as John puts it in verse 14. And that's a prayer that God answers every time. It may not be that you see the answers right away. It may be that there will be a delayed appearance of the things that you need and that you've asked for. But what John is saying right here is that we know that we have the request we've asked of him. It's just a matter of seeing it. It's as good as done. And he's prepared us for this promise all the way through this letter because he's made it crystal clear who God is towards us. He's reminded us over and over again that God is for us. That he sent his son as an advocate, not a judge. That he relates to us as a father who, whose precious children have an inheritance. And that he sent his own son, not as a one-time gift that he then leaves us to make good use of. But as a sign of how he always looks on us. Of how he's always oriented to us. John has said 
The Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, chapter 4. And so we know that God loves us. We know it and believe it because we saw what He gave us. So John wants us looking at the gift of Christ and knowing this is how God looks at you right now in your need. So you are never going to outstay your welcome with Him. You could never over-ask of Him. Jesus lives to intercede for you. So ask and ask boldly. Now, before we move to the next thing that we know, we know that we'll have everything we need through prayer. That's John's first point. Before we move to the next thing that we know, I do want to address something that John says right after this promise that God hears us when we ask. He, it, it, it's really interesting to me that that when he applies this promise and, and mentions what we should pray for, the kinds of things that God will hear when we pray. The specific example he gives is not a new Ferrari, right? That you, a kind of name it and claim it style where you, you just imagine the thing you want that you think you need, you ask God of it, and bam, it's yours. He doesn't go to some personal indulgence at all. His first example of a kind of prayer we should pray with the promise that when we do, God will hear us and answer. It's prayer for a brother or a sister who's sinning. He thinks of prayer as a power tool for doing the work of the church, for investment in each other's lives. Prayer is an act of love for others that wants to see them flourish. Look at verse 16. If anyone see, He's just said, we know we have the request that we've asked of him. Prayer is still on his mind. And he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, he shall pray. And God will give him life because we know that we have the request that we have asked for him. Now, I want to make something, I want want to speak to something that you may have tripped on when we read earlier, when we were were reading through this passage. You know, John goes from, from this promise that you can pray for people that are sinning, for a brother or a sister in Christ who's sinning, and that God will hear and answer and give them life when you pray for them. Then he launches into this, this section about sins that lead to death versus sins that don't lead to death. And maybe that was something that tripped you up. It certainly has tripped me up when I've come across it. I want to at least acknowledge that that's there and acknowledge that, that many of us are asking, what is the sin that leads to death? Have I committed that? What is a sin that doesn't lead to death? And I just want to acknowledge before I even say anything that it's really difficult to say what those are because John doesn't really elaborate and it's not a code word for something else that some other writer says. It's, it's really a, a kind of obscure phrase, to be honest. You read through the rest of the New Testament, this is not language that's picked up and used and elaborated on in other places. And so we have to be real careful not to kind of overextend what we think it means. We've got to be careful with it. And I want you to know that I'm not sure exactly what it means. And I didn't read anybody for help on this that was sure exactly what it means. But the best explanation for the difference that I came across, the one that seems to fit best with what John's been interested in in this letter, is that sin leading to death is a sin that, that is cut off from the possibility of forgiveness. Right? Forgiveness is a pathway to life in this letter. We have life through Jesus because through Jesus we have forgiveness. The wages of sin, Paul tells us, is death. So there's a connection between sin and death and forgiveness and life. So a sin that leads to death is one that that cuts you off from the possibility of forgiveness. 
And in this context, the main thing John's been, in, been, been focused on and warning them against is denying that Jesus is Christ, come in the flesh to die for sinners. That apparently is one of the main things that was denied by these other teachers. They didn't believe that Jesus had come in the flesh to die for sinners. And I think perhaps most likely what John is referring to here is that when you commit that sin of denying that Jesus came in the flesh to die for sinners, then you have cut yourself off from the only hope anyone ever has for forgiveness. And so long as you commit that sin and deny that Jesus is the Son of God who took on a body to die so that sinners could be free from the penalty of sin, then you've committed the sin that leads to death. Now, that doesn't, that, that, that doesn't resolve all the problems with this text. There are other questions that that explanation raises, uh, and I don't have time to get into them. What I like about it is that it seems to fit what John's already been interested in. He's warning them over and over and over against this apostasy, against denying the truth about Jesus. It would make sense that he would warn them here, again, at the end, not to do that. Because their only hope is in a Jesus who took on a body and then took on a death that we deserve. And whatever, I think that's the best explanation I've seen. I want to put a pin in that. Say, I'm happy to talk about it more after the service if you're interested in it. And I want to jump to what I think is crystal clear about this passage and what I want to leave you with before we move into the rest of, the, of John's list of things that we can know. There's something about this passage that's crystal clear, and I don't want you to miss it for all that might not be clear. It's a point about prayer, and we need to hear it. When we're confronted in our lives together with the sins of other people, sins against us directly or or maybe sin patterns in their lives that affect us or frustrate us or wear us out, what should we do? One of the things we talked about earlier in the the letter speaks directly to this, that, that our love for each other is modeled on God's love for us in Jesus. And God has loved us in Jesus, not as a judge, but as an advocate, one who stands for and represents and and earns pardon for us. So our love for each other, modeled on that kind of love, turns us into advocates and not judges. So we don't all of a sudden stop seeing flaws in people. That's not what it is, like turning a blind eye to things that, that aren't right. That's not the calling. But the calling is that when we see flaws in each other, as we will, we respond to those flaws as advocates, not judges. We don't, we don't see ourselves as standing above those who've been guilty. We don't dismiss them and sentence them or banish them through some sort of punishment we dish out. We see the flaw and our question is, what can I do to help? Where is my opportunity to seek peace and redemption here? We come in like Jesus did, entering into where they are to try to help them out of where they are. Now, what John is pointing us to here at the end of this letter is one of the most powerful tools we have for doing this work that he's put in front of us. So if we're to love one another as he's loved us, and if that means responding to each other's flaws, not as judges, but as advocates, how do we do that? What are our resources? Here John tells us, whatever we ask, according to the will of our Father, he hears us and we know that we have what we have requested from him so if you see a brother or a sister committing a sin 
ask God and he will give them life. What John wants you to know throughout whatever else may be unclear about this text is that the most powerful way we can serve others when we notice their flaws is to pray for them. So you notice somebody in front of you who needs correction or care. You know if you take up that task, you're going to be tempted to stress over it as if it's up to you to fix them. And when you feel that tendency in yourself, this passage is a reminder to stop. Don't feel that. Don't do that. Pray for them instead to the one who can actually change them. Otherwise, you might give up. Don't stress out over people's sins. Pray for them. Don't judge people for their sins. Pray for them. Don't give up on people for their sins. Pray for them. Just pray for them. They need it, just like you do. And we know that when we ask according to his will, he hears us. First thing we know is that we'll have everything we need for the lives he's put in front of us, including our ministry to each other in our sin, because through prayer, God gives us what we need. Here's the second thing, and the rest of these are much more quick. We will not lose our battle with sin. This next verse echoes what we have already considered back in chapter 3. So I'm going to refer you to that sermon for some more detail. But look what he says in verse 18. We know everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. And a lot of times that can be a bit of a jolt to the system. Sometimes that can create fear in us. If we're worried that because we are still sinning, maybe we aren't born of God. Maybe we are not actually with him. That isn't what John means to do to us at all here. Now, he does mean to say it's simple cause and effect. When God's spirit takes hold of a person's life, it's like being born biologically from a father. You're going to look like him in certain ways. That's inevitable. That is going to happen. And so if we're casual about sin, we do have reason to be concerned because no one born of God can be casual about sin, can, be, can make peace with it and treat it as if it isn't sinful. But, but John is not actually writing here to warn us. At this point, remember, he's trying to reassure us. He's building us up. Look at what he says. This is not a warning, but a promise. We know everyone who's been born of God doesn't keep on sinning, but instead, he who was born of God, now he's talking about Jesus, the only begotten son of God, protects him. And the evil one can't touch him. John's writing to encourage you, not to, not to frighten you. It's not a warning, but a promise and based not on your confidence and your willpower, your resolve or strength, but, but, but based on the one who fights for you. The reason that you won't keep on sinning, that your battle with sin is as good as one, is because the one born of God protects you. Back when we talked about this sermon, I talked about um, the sermon on chapter 3, this same point was being made back there. I talked about one of my favorite all-time books by a, a, a British pastor from several hundred years ago named Richard Sibbs. And the title of, of his book was Bruised Reed. It was written to friends who, uh, who were struggling with assurance to help them remember who Jesus is to them and for them. And he used the title, The Bruised Reed, comes from a prophecy that Isaiah made about Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew applies that prophecy to Jesus describes him as a person who would not even break off a bruised reed. I love the imagery there. That You know what happens when, when a plant gets stepped on? When it, when it gets turned over? When, it gets, when, when the source of nutrition and life gets, gets severed? 
through some sort of blemish or damage, that, that sometimes it's just be easier just to go ahead and cut it off. That's going to make that life for that reed difficult. That flower is going to have a hard time producing if it's been bent like that. So maybe better to just divert the life, the nutrition that's there to the strong plants. Just go ahead and cut that one off and give the other ones a better chance. That might be how we would approach it. But what, what the gospel writer is telling us is that Jesus is not like us. He's not like that. He looks at plants that, that have been damaged, that are wounded, that are weak. And instead of cutting them off, instead of breaking them, he cultivates them. He restores them. He adds a little trellis to them to keep them standing upright. He gives them extra water and extra access to sun to make sure that they, they can overcome the weakness that's in them. He's for them. And that's what John wants you to notice here about Jesus. That especially in your sins, you should know that you have one who sees you in your weakness and is for you anyway. We quoted from that book back in that sermon from Bruce Reed. Especially this part where Richard Sibbs talks about Jesus as our advocate in our sins. And here's what he says. Christ will take our part against our corruptions. They are his enemies as well as ours. So let us not look so much at who are our enemies as who is our judge and captain. Nor what they threaten, but what he promises. We have more for us than against us. What coward would not fight when he is sure of victory? Now John qualifies what he says here. This promise that the evil one can't touch us with another warning that he's also raised earlier in the letter. And just because the evil one won't touch us doesn't mean that he's not powerful. So the third thing that we know he wants us to remember and to take seriously is verse 19. We know we're from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So for now, even though God's children won't be destroyed by what the evil one is trying to do, John wants us to believe that that is a real problem for us. The evil one is alive and active. It's mysterious. It's difficult to imagine. But you are experiencing his attacks in your life. And for now, we should expect that. John has always drawn this either or. You're either of God or of the devil. That means to be of God, as he says here, and from God in verse 19, means to be on the opposite side of a war from the evil one. And we know what his work is. The Bible's clear about it. His job, his life's purpose, is to make you doubt whether you can trust God's word. To make you wonder whether or not God can handle your life. His job is to undermine your confidence in God's goodness. And that means sometimes he may cause you to suffer like he did Job. Hoping that by your suffering, you'll come to wonder what kind of God would let you go through this. And he will cause you, try to cause you to sin like he did with Adam and Eve. To tell you that, that God's ways, God's restrictions, God's boundaries are meant to hold you back. They're keeping you from a happy or a fulfilled life that you could have if you go your way. He's going to tell you that, and he's going to make it look really good. You should expect for sin to be an issue you will wrestle with until the day you die, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we're from God. That means we've made ourselves his enemies. We should take him seriously. 
think about them and pray against them. But friends, that's not where John leaves us. He ends where he's wanted our attention the whole time. Verse 20, the last thing we know. And the only hope we need faced with the attacks of the evil one and the sin that's still in us and the death that's still waiting for us, the only thing we need to know, the bedrock of all of our hope is that the Son of God has come. A Son has come. And he's given us understanding. He's made it so we can know him who is true. More than just know about him, he's made it so that we are in him who is true. He has somehow mysteriously joined his life to ours so that we are one with him, in him, or in John's language throughout the letter, abiding in him. He who is the true God and eternal life. And why I think John ends there is that he knows we're always going to be tempted to forget that. That who God is to us is defined by the fact that God sent Jesus. And he wants us to always look back there. So are you this morning afraid of where you stand? Has John rocked your confidence before God? If you are afraid of where you stand, then you need to look back at Jesus and remember the Son of God has come so that we could have understanding and know him who is true. Are you having trouble loving other people as he's called you to? That's not easy. That feels like death sometimes. Are you having trouble loving others? Then John would have you to remember and look back and know that the Son of God has come for us. It's as you see his love for you that your love for others will grow. So don't cut off access from that sunlight that brings growth and fruit in your life. Look back at Jesus And remember, we know the Son of God has come and given us understanding. Are you feeling the pull of idols? Other things that seem more trustworthy, more pleasurable than the things God has put in front of you? Are the lust of your eyes and the pride of life pulling your heart away from him? Look back at Jesus. Look at what sin cost him. Look at how much he loves you. And believe that he would never withhold anything that's good for you or ask you to do anything that's bad for you. That's not who he is. Look back to Jesus. Or maybe you're here and you're still not sure you can trust him. You haven't committed to Jesus. You've been wondering about whether you might. You've been wondering what that would mean for you or why you can trust him to be good for the promises that are made in this letter. And if that's you, and you're wondering what it would take for you to cross over into faith, then I want the last word to go to you. One of the things that John has said to us is that it's the Spirit of God who gives us eyes to see that God's promises are not just empty words, but life-giving truth with the power to save. He's made it clear it's the Spirit's job and only in the Spirit's power to give that kind of sight And in his gospel, John describes Jesus as a shepherd. A shepherd who knows his sheep, who comes for his sheep, who speaks to them and whose sheep know his voice. One of the best pieces of advice I've read from another pastor who was talking to someone who was sort of stuck on whether or not Christianity could be for them and not sure what it would even look like to cross over was to claim this idea that that Jesus is a shepherd who seeks after his sheep. 
and to ask, even from your place of doubt, to ask him to come looking for you. Ask him to speak to you and give you ears to hear his voice. Ask that shepherd to come for you and see what happens. Father, I pray if that person is in this room right now, you would give them faith to believe that Jesus is the Son of God come to be the Savior of the world. And I pray that those of us who believe would have confidence to hold on in faith even though the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And that we would trust in you to protect us, that we would ask you to be for us, to give us what we need. And that you would give us faith that will last until turned to sight. Faith that overcomes. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.